Welcome to the Urban Hope Podcast. Today's sermon is called How Agape Behaves from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 through 8 from Reverend Ron Carter. This morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, let them be acceptable in your sight. You're my Lord, you're my strength, and you are my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you would do me a big favor, if you would close your eyes, and I want you to keep them closed until I tell you to open them. I want you to imagine that you are at a destination wedding. Somewhere in the Caribbean of a friend or a beloved relative. The water is crystal blue. Beaches are sandy white. The weather couldn't be better, and the views are breathtaking. The groom is dashingly handsome. The bride is radiantly beautiful. Romance fills the air as the soon-to-be husband and wife are holding hands, looking deeply into each other's eyes as the wedding officiant leads them through the ceremony. Midway through the ceremony, the wedding officiant says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Immediately, you recognize these words. You've heard them before at other weddings. But suddenly the ceremony is interrupted. Seemingly out of nowhere, an old man appears. Hi, my name is Paul. I apologize for interrupting, but as I was on my morning walk along the beach, I couldn't help but notice your beautiful wedding. As I got closer, I heard the wedding officiant reciting words about love. And the closer I got, I realized he was reciting words that I had written. But, but I didn't write those words with a wedding in mind. I, I wrote those words to show how love behaves. Not so much on beautiful days like this, but when life is hard and messy. I, I wrote these words as part of a letter, a letter I wrote to a local church, a local church, incidentally, that I founded several years ago. It wasn't an easy letter to write. It wasn't easy to write because I had to correct this church. I had to rebuke this church. 
it, it, it grieves me to say this, but this church, this body of believers were exhibiting behaviors unbecoming of the one they claimed to serve and worship. This body of believers were divided over their favorite preacher. This body of believers were suing one another. This body of believers were engaged in idolatry. This body of believers were arrogant. They were proud. This body of believers were involved in gross immorality. This body of believers even had the nerve, the unmitigated gall, to challenge my apostolic authority. This body of believers were abusing the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. So I wrote a letter, and I included the words you just read to remind them how agape behaves. You may open your eyes. Earlier this week when Pastor Alton called me and asked me to preach, he told me, you know, he always said, preach whatever you want to preach. And I texted him back and I said, well, I feel led to preach out of 1 Corinthians 13 because the Lord has had me camped here for some time now. And this is not the first time I preached this message. I want you to understand that. I preached it at my church, Harvest. I preached it at a conference that I was at uh, two weeks ago. And now I'm preaching it to you because I think the Lord really wants to impart something to his people. So today, um, and so then he texts me back and he said, well, that's, 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 that's amazing because we are journeying through 1 Corinthians right now, and we've almost gotten to around chapter 7, uh, so to speak. And so um, I said, spot on. Now, now I just want to say this as an aside. Hopefully what I say today will also may help shorten your journey through 1 Corinthians uh, because I'm going to really lay it down in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 14, and how this all fits together. And so it's all going to make a lot of sense. Now, before I dive into 1 Corinthians 13, I'm only going to look at the first eight verses quickly. I want to lay a foundation by taking a few minutes to look at the five types of love that are found in Greek literature. Now, if you don't already know or understand this, that the New Testament that we read was written in the Greek language. The wonderful thing about the Greek language is that the Greek language is very, very rich in its usage of words. Unlike the English language, the English language is very limited in some respect. The Greeks had, again, about five different words to express this concept or this idea called love. In the English, we only have really one word. We use the word L-O-V-E to refer to a lot of different things, and sometimes it can get rather confusing because we say, I like Jordans, I like chocolate, I like uh, that hairstyle you have, or I, or I love my wife, I love my kids, I love this. And sometimes it can be rather confusing because what are you saying when you say you love chocolate and you love, you use the exact same word. Now, 
Intuitively, I think we understand that there are some differences between it and how we express it, but the Greeks used concrete words to express these different dimensions or aspects of love. Now, if you're taking notes real quick, I apologize. I would have put together a slide, but I did not have time this time around, so forgive me. Real quick, the first Greek word for love is epithumia, and it's spelled E-P-I-T-H-U-M-I-A, epithumia. This word means desire. It's a physical desire. When it is used negatively, though, it applies to lust. Epithumia is a desire, a physical desire for something. When it is positively used, it just means that I have an intense desire or I really love chocolate. I love uh, Jordan shoes. I love, I, I love uh, Apple products. And so when we say we love it, that's what it means. I have, I, I have a desire for this particular thing, this particular item. So epithumia is a, is a desire. It's legitimate. However, when it is used negatively, the Bible condemns lust because lust is a desire for something that you should not have. And usually it is a desire for someone else's spouse or having a desire that is not sanctioned by the Bible. So epithumia is one definition for love, and it simply means a desire, a physical desire, a strong inclination to have something. A second Greek word for love is the word storge. Say that with me, storge. Storge is family love. It's familia. It is love of family members, love for your husband, your spouse, your children, love for your extended relatives. It is Love for family. And we all have that. We all have love for our family, our immediate family, our extended family. That's what the word storge means, is love for family members. The third word for love is eros. It's where we get the word erotic from. Now, eros is not a dirty word. Eros is romantic love. It is that love that, that we have for one another when, when we first meet. When guy and girl first meet, there's this strong physical attraction, this desire. Oh, man, I, mm, mm, some, you know, something is in the air, you know, stuff. This bing, 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 bing stuff. Man, woo, man, man, she look good. Oh, he is fine. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's Eros. That's romantic love. That's what brings us together. That's what draws us together as human beings. Now, you guys are going to have a marriage conference again next week. Now, here's what you need to understand. Eros will not and cannot sustain a marriage. This is free. This ain't a marriage conference, but I want you to understand. If all you have is what brought you together, that physical attraction, that desire to be close to them, that desire to be near them, that desire to want to snuggle up next to them. You're not going to always want to do that when you're married. Can I get a witness, married folk? You're not going to always want to snuggle up. You're going to say, hey, move to the other side of the bed. Why you sit next to me? I don't like you right now. You getting on my nerves. I wish we had another car. You can drive to church on your own. 
I don't have to wait on you. You're making me late. You this, that, and other. You have to have more than eros. You have to have more than a physical attraction. It is not sustainable. But it is a part of marriage. If you don't have eros, you don't have that ongoing romance and that desire to connect one another, your marriage is not going to sustain. But you got to have more than eros in your marriage. So you have epithumia. You have storge. You have eros. The other, uh, the fourth Greek word for love is philia, P-H-I-L-I-A or phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, philanthropy, philosophy. It's the love of, and in this case, it's the love of the brother, the love of the brethren. This is relational love. This is friendship love. This is the love you have for you know, you may say, that's my B-O-I, my boy. That's my dude. That's my girl. That, that's my roadie. That's my dog. That's my homie. That's my ride or die. That is Philia. This, this, is, your, this is your people that you've connected with. These are your friends. These are the people you hang out with, you go, go to lunch with. You, you, you know, this is my girl. You do stuff with. You roll out. When you road trip, I got to have my girl with me. I got to have my guy with me. That's me and your pastor. See, we were, we were brothers. That's what we met. When I used to go to Grand Rapids, when he still lived there, Sister Sandra already knew. It was over while I was there. She didn't see him. Because he's coming to pick me up after work. We rolling out, we hanging out, we at the bookstore, we eating, we chopping it up. That's what you do with friends. That's phileo. And then the final Greek word for love is the word that we're going to focus in on today. It is the Greek word that blinks like a neon sign in the Bible. This is the love that Chad read about. In the first John passage, when it says God is love, the word is agape. Say that with me, agape. Agape is unconditional love. Agape is love that is selfless, selfless, where the focus is not on self. Agape it's not grounded in emotions or in our feelings, but it is grounded in our will. Agape is a direct act of the will. It's something that we choose to do. It's unconditional. Again, it is selfless. It is not self-seeking. Agape is sacrificial. Agape is what led Jesus to the cross. He did it as a direct act of his will. He says, no man taketh my life. I lay it down on my own accord. Agape is what caused Jesus to condescend, to come down from heaven, to come down here to live among us, to live 33 years thereabout. Again, to sacrifice his life on the cross that we might live. That's Agape, sacrificial, selfless, not seeking its own, 
putting others first. That's what agape is. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is the kind of love Paul is talking about. He's not talking about phileo or philia. He's not talking about storge. He's not talking about eros. He's not talking about epithumia. He's talking about sacrificial, unconditional, selfless, other-focused kind of love. And so as we walk through 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8, real quick, and then I'm going to let you go home, but I'm not going to rush. I'm going to do it quickly, but I'm not going to rush. There's a difference. Are you ready to journey with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, how agape behaves. Verse 13, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not, and I'm going to actually use the word agape, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not agape, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. In these first three verses, Paul essentially is saying to these Christian believers at the time he wrote this and to us seated here this morning, Paul is declaring that agape in the life of a believer is an absolute necessity. We don't get to opt out. We don't get to choose. Paul says, agape in the life of a believer is what should motivate us in doing whatever it is that we do. And Paul uses these hypotheticals to drive home this point. He says, it doesn't matter if you speak in tongues it doesn't matter if you have this powerful gift that you can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if it is not motivated, if it's not grounded in agape. Because remember, agape is sacrificial. Agape is not self-seeking. Agape is not focused on self. Paul says if you don't have that kind of love, that spiritual gift is meaningless. He says if you have the gift of prophecy, and you can fathom all mission. You can, you can, you can, you know, you can peer into the future. You know what God is going to do in the future and all of that. But Paul says, if it's not grounded in agape, it too is nothing. But then, look at what it says in verse 3. Paul says, if I give all that I possess to the poor, you are a giver. You love serving the poor. You like going out to the park or doing whatever, you giving to the poor, you ministering to the poor. But Paul says, if you are not motivated out of agape, and even if you go so far as to become a martyr for the faith, you give your life, you sacrifice your life, you die for the faith. Paul says, if it's not grounded or motivated by agape, it means nothing. If the love of God is not compelling you to give to the poor, 
Because sometimes we give because it's a return on our investment. It's because we can get a tax write-off. Now, I'm not throwing stones, but my point is I think Paul is making a critical point here that if you give so that you can get something back, if you give because at the end of the year you can write that off on your income tax, that's not motivated out of agape. You're doing it because it brings benefit to you. Years ago, when I was the executive director at this school right across the street, Restoration Academy, I was the second executive director of that school. I had a donor send me a letter and said, this is all I can give to you this year because I have reached my limit of what I can write off at the end of the year. I kept that letter for a long time because it was very revealing. He wasn't giving motivated out of agape. He was motivated in his giving because of what it brought back to him. It was a tax write-off. And again, I'm not besmirching you getting stuff back on your income tax. I'm just saying, Paul says, if you're not motivated out of agape, what's the point? Even if you don't get anything back, Agape says, I'm going to do this because I am following in the footsteps of the master. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't looking for a quote-unquote a return on the investment in that sense. Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can serve. You can preach. You could do all this stuff, but if it's not motivated out of agape, Paul says you gain nothing. Love is essential in the life of a believer. The Lord Jesus went so far as this. In John 13, 34, 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another. And then Jesus says something very powerful. Jesus gave a litmus test for how other people will, will be able to determine if we were truly believers. And you know what that litmus test is? Jesus said, by this, by your love, by your agape for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. That's how... The watching world knows that we belong to Jesus and it is how we interact and how we love one another. So if I ask a question, Urban Hope, how deep is your love for one another? How are you loving one another? Are you loving, as Chad said, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Husbands, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Now, what Paul does in the rest of this passage is Paul vacillates between describing what agape is or what agape does but he spends the bulk of his time showing us what agape does not do. He shows us what it isn't like. 
And sometimes the best way to show what something is is to show you what it is not like. Right off the bat, verse 4, Paul says love is, he shows how agape does act or behave in the positive. He says, first of all, love is patient. Say patient. Love is patient. And what that means is that it's the ability to endure. I want y'all to listen. It is the ability to endure, to put up with, to tolerate difficult people and situations without giving up hope. The King James Version of the Bible uses the word long-suffering. When we are patient, we long-suffer with people. You put up with their idiosyncrasies. We we put up with their things that irritate you, the things that racks your nerves. You put up with it. You endure them without giving up hope. That's what agape is. Agape is patience. And we see this exhibited in our Savior. Jesus was patient with the disciples. He long suffered with them, even when they did not understand what he was trying to communicate to them. He long suffered with them. He put up with them. He bared up under all of the frustration that he had to endure. That's what patience is. Now, my question to you is, how patient are you? Don't answer it. Don't look at your spouse because they may reveal. Don't look at them. They may tell on you. Love is patient. The second thing Paul says in verse 4 is love is what? Kind. Love is kind. Agape is kind. Agape, Patrick, is gracious. Agape is gentle. Agape is mild, pleasant. It's the opposite of being harsh, bitter, or sharp. It has to be with your has to do with your demeanor. Are you a kind person? Whether you realize it or not, one of the qualifications of a person serving in leadership in God's church is that he or she is kind. Kind. Not mean, not bitter, not short-tempered, but kind. Are you kind? You can't really answer that for yourself. Other people have to tell you. If you're a kind person. I I told the group, Dion, that I was with last week, I said, if you really want to know if you're a kind person, If you want to know, hang around some kids. You'll find out if you're kind because children will reveal whether you're kind. They'll they'll expose you. Children can pick up on kindness. They can pick up on, they'll they'll run from you and you'll be like, you all trying to be, come here, come here. No, 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 that's you fake. They, they know. Children intuitively can pick up on kindness. It's something about your, you know, animals can do it too. They can sense it. It's something that emanates off of you. It's an aroma that you have. And, and, and this is the aroma of Christ. 
This is what drew people to Jesus. Jesus was kind. Now, now Jesus didn't play with his opponents, but Jesus' whole demeanor and disposition was being kind. Are you, Urban Hope, patient with one another? Urban Hope, are you kind to one another? Are you patient in your homes? Are you, pa- are you kind to your spouse? Are you kind to your kids? Are you kind to your mother, your grandmother, your sisters, and your brothers? It's not just limited to a local church setting in here, although that's the context. But this should emanate from you everywhere you are. On your job, people should, should say, man, man, Dion's just a nice, he's a kind, not just nice, he's a kind guy. Love is patient. Love is kind. In verses 5 through 6, Paul shifts gears. He said, well, let me, me, I'm sorry, in in the other part of verse 4, he begins to show what love does not do. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now listen to what love doesn't do. Agape does not envy. To envy means to be jealous of the blessings or the achievement of others. This jealousy is jealous to the point that if you could, you would snatch the blessing or the achievement from that person. You don't want them to have it, and if you could, you would take it from them. The best way I can illustrate this, if you may have seen or heard uh, um, and usually a woman is, is usually the victim of this, is where she's been involved with a guy and she breaks up with him and he later does major bodily harms to her and worst case scenario, he ends up killing her and then the story comes out that he says that if I can't have you, nobody else will. That's what envy is. Taken to its natural conclusion, envy will take from somebody what they have because you don't want them to have it. But Paul says agape doesn't behave like that. Now, in order to wrap your head around this is that The amazing thing about this is that everything that Paul lists here about how love behaves and does not behave, he was indicting the church at Corinth. All of this stuff was going on in a local fellowship. They were envious of one another. They were jealous of one another. They were not kind to one another. They were not patient with another. And Paul continues on in his list of vices that were in this church. He says, love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't act as a braggart. Love doesn't always brag. Love doesn't talk about or agape doesn't point fingers at me and says, look at me. Look at what I have. Love doesn't brag. Love doesn't put other people on front street. Brag. Being braggadocious, show off, attention-seeking. Paul says, no, love doesn't boast. 
Love isn't proud or agape isn't proud. And this has to do with being arrogant, having a know-it-all spirit. And this is someone who's proud. You can't tell them anything. They know it all. This was exemplified in the Corinthian church because they were challenging Paul's apostolic authority and basically telling Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. Paul said, I can't, we can't, I can't tell you anything. You know it all now. You've been saved five minutes. You've been saved five minutes. I can't tell you anything more worse than a Christian who's been saved a half a second and think they want to run the church. You need to sit down. Sit down. Sit down. You don't know anything. You don't know enough. But a proud person thinks they know. And just because God has been gracious and given you a gift, that doesn't mean that you're ready to take center stage. It doesn't mean you're ready to serve because you still have some rough edges around you that need to be corrected. Love isn't envious. It's not, it doesn't boast, Patrick. It doesn't, it's not proud, Dion. It's not rude. Can y'all say that word, rude? Rude. Christians? Rude? Christ followers? Rude? Rude. The idea here is behavior that is unbecoming. And to a certain degree, it is shocking. And it's unsuitable for that particular person. How many of you ever ran into a person who said they saved and they've been rude? Don't, don't be shy. Raise your hand. I just pray it's not you. Rude. Rude, 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 rude. Behavior unbecoming of a person claiming to be a follower of Christ. Rude. Cut people off on the highway. Give them the, the finger. Give them a piece of their mind. Talking on your cell phone loud in public where everybody can hear it. I was on an airplane not too long ago. Matter of fact, two weeks ago. Brother Chad and dudes, people getting their luggage out of the, the storage area. Dude on the phone, on the speaker. Like everybody want to hear his conversation. And had the nerve to also use profanity. Lace conversation. Just rude. Not thinking about anybody else. The only person he was thinking about was him and the other person on the other. And probably not the other person. He just, it's just, I'm in my world. Y'all just exist in it. When you're rude, that's all you think about is yourself. You're not thinking about anybody else. The Corinthians in this passage were rude to each other. Christians being rude. Rude in the way they talk. Rude in the way they act. Rude in their attitudes. Rude. Rude. Paul goes on and says that agape 
It's not self-seeking. In other words, it's not self-promoting. I'm afraid today more Christians are concerned with their personal brand than they are with the brand of Christ. They're driven by how many social media posts they have. They're driven by how many followers on Facebook or IG or TikTok that they have. And so they're driven by promoting themselves. They spend more time in front of a camera than they do in prayer and in the Word of God. And in some cases, depending on how old you are, you spend more time on those platforms than you do even studying your homework. Because for you, it's all about your self-promotion. Everybody, I'm going to be discovered. I'm going to be the next social influencer. I'm going to get discovered. This is how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to actually just make videos all day. Promoting self. Got to have it out there. Want people to look. And then sit back and just wait to see how many times people are going to like your post. Not fully realizing that there is someone behind the screen controlling when those lights get populated and and, and what all you see, that there's this, that's another discussion. I ain't gonna, I'm going to leave that alone, Dion. I'm going to leave that alone. I ain't going to meddle. Uh-oh, all right, listen to this. Love is not easily angered. Uh-oh. Agape doesn't blow a fuse. Agape isn't quick-tempered. Agape is not easily irritated. Some of you struggle with a temper. you quick to get mad. You are quick to get irritated. And that is because you have not fully submitted yet to the work of Christ in your life. Now, the beautiful thing is, is that you don't realize that agape is already in you. It's not something that you have to work for. It's not something that you have to pray about or ask the Lord to give you because when you became a Christian, the love of God was poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. Hope does not disappoint. And the reason why hope doesn't disappoint is because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You already have agape living inside of you. You just have to submit to it and allow the love of God to flow through you. And when you allow the love of God to flow through you, it will affect your emotions. It will affect your temper, too. You just can't say, that's how I is. I'm just like that. No. When you come under the lordship of Christ, everything is under his lordship, including your temper. That doesn't mean you may not struggle, but this is what discipleship is all about. The more you submit... And you understand what is already in you and allow that to come through you. So love is not easily irritated and it's connected to being patient. It's not easily angered. It's not quick-tempered. The Corinthians were doing all of this. 
Love does not keep record of wrongs. And what's interesting about this is that this is an accounting term. It's a bookkeeping term. This is a term means that you keep records. Man, you got records. I mean, you, I mean, you, got re- you keep receipts. Uh, you, you keep receipts of everything folk has done to you. You got a receipt, and you can pull it out and say, man, you know, I keep receipts, brother. I keep receipts. And I can whip out the receipt. You know, last time you did this, whip, there it is. You got the actual date, the time. You got a journal entry when the last time someone did something to you, and you keep records of it, and you always bring it back up. Paul says agape does not keep records of wrong. Agape does what God does. God says that he, he, he basically throws our sins in the sea of what? Forgetfulness. Now, it doesn't mean that God forgets our sins. That would negate God's nature as being omniscient. God knows everything, actual as well as potential. It's an idiomatic expression. God doesn't forget our sins. What God doesn't do is God doesn't bring it up. God is not constantly reminding you that you sinned last week. When when you repent and ask God to forgive it, that's it for God. He ain't bringing it back up, but we do. We keep a ledger. We hold it against. We do it with our spouses. We do it with our loved ones. We do it with ministry leaders. We do it with the pastor. We keep records. I got receipts. And then when you go in and meet with them, you pull out your receipts. And the reason why is because you haven't truly forgiven. You haven't released them. Now, I always have to have a caveat here. Now, I'm not talking about a situation where someone has abused you and that kind of a deal. We're talking about something different here. But what I'm talking about is a lot of these things, these little petty things that you do, you just keep little records. You're always bringing it up, always got to remind people. Paul says you don't keep, don't keep records of it. Love doesn't delight in evil. In other words, when, when people sin or something goes awry, you don't sit back and say, <laughs> I knew it. No, praise the Lord. See, I knew that time was coming. You rejoice. You're glad. You're glad that it happens. You rejoice that stuff has happened. You rejoice that you see folks doing it. You rejoice. You love it. The Corinthians were doing it. They rejoiced in evil. They were shouting over evil. They, they, they were saying, praise the Lord. But Paul says agape doesn't behave like that. It doesn't rejoice in evil. It's not glad. But now as Paul kind of rounds home and as I bring this message to an end, Paul says love always protects. Not sometimes. Love always protects. It protects from harm. Love supports. The best word, the best picture I can give this of you about love protecting is the story of the woman caught in adultery. You know the story. The Pharisees who had been trying to trap Jesus went to the red light district or wherever this woman was who was engaged in an act of fornication with someone who was not her husband. 
My question has always been, why the Pharisees, these religious leaders, why y'all down there? What y'all doing there? You had to deliberately go there to find her. You go drag the woman out, leave the man wherever he was. You drag this woman to Jesus and says, here. She was caught, listen, in the very act. Y'all down there watching? How you know? She was caught, they says, not because somebody told them. They says she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, 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 Jesus, Moses in the law said that someone who does this is worthy of death. But what do you say? I want you to notice what Jesus does. You see agape in action. Jesus kneels down, starts writing on the ground. And the Bible says that when he says, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. And then the Bible says from the, from the oldest to the youngest, they all dropped their rocks and walked away. And then Jesus stands up and he says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? Jesus knew they were all gone. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go, sin no more. At least something worse comes upon you. When you protect, it doesn't mean you co-sign people's sin. Jesus didn't co-sign her sin, but Jesus protected her. He protected her humanity. He protected her as a human being. He remained her, he kept her dignity intact. The Pharisees were not thinking about her as a person. They were not thinking about her well-being. All they were thinking about, I'm going to use her as an object. I'm going to use her as a means to entrapping Jesus. We don't care anything about her. She's basically incidental to this. She's meaningless to us. We're just using her. We're just using her. But love always protects. The Bible says that love, agape, covers a multitude of what? Sins. It doesn't excuse it. Make no mistake, the Bible doesn't co-sign. Jesus never winked at sin. But Jesus maintained this woman's dignity. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always trusts. That means that love, agape, Agape believes the best. Agape is about believing the best, and it gives the person the benefit of the doubt until they prove otherwise. It always trusts. I'm going to trust what you tell me until you prove me otherwise. I'm going to believe in you until you prove me otherwise. Love always protects. Love always trusts. The Bible says, in the last one, it says love always hopes. Love always hopes. Love doesn't give up. The best illustration of this in the Gospels is the parable of the lost son. We often call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it's technically the parable of the lost son. And there were two lost sons, not just one. The one who left and the one who stayed at home. Both of them were lost. But I want you to notice 
the demeanor and disposition of the father in relationship to the one son who left. The father never gave up hope. The father always longed for the son's return. Love always hopes. Love doesn't give up. And this is an encouraging agape doesn't give up. And sometimes you may have wondered why your parents and why you see people just long, just hang in there with people. That's what agape does. Agape doesn't just throw in the towel. It doesn't say no mas, no more. Agape hangs in there. And sometimes I'm absolutely baffled when I see mothers do what they do. Some mothers just don't give up on their kids. I don't care how scandalous they may be. They don't give up on them. One of my favorite TV shows, it's not on regular anymore. I watch it on reruns. It's called The Closer. I love detective shows, police shows, lawyer shows. And one particular episode, one of the police officers is towards the end of the show. He went to this woman's house, and he was talking to her, and he was having to let her know that her, her grandson was found guilty of committing a crime. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, and I quote, his father wasn't a good son. His father wasn't a good dad. And then the next few words is what got me. But she said, I never stopped loving him. Yeah, he was a bad son. He wasn't a good son. He wasn't a good father to his own child. But I never stopped loving him. That's picture of agape. God never stops loving us. That's why he said in Hosea, that he's forever married to the backslider. That God love always protects, always trusts, always hopes. And then finally, in verse 8, Paul says, love never fails. Say never. And it begs the question, why? Well, it goes back to the passage from 1 John. The reason why love or agape never fails is because our God never fails. Love never fails because agape flows from the heart of God to the heart of his children. Love would never fail. Because God will never fail. Because God is love. So my question to you, Urban Hope, are you exhibiting the characteristics of agape in your life as members of a church body, as husbands and wives in your homes, as neighbors in the neighborhood that the Lord has called you 
Are you behaving in a way that reflects the character and nature of Christ? Because that love, that agape, is on the inside of each one of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your word. I thank you that you first loved us. And because you loved us, we have the capacity to love as well. Help us to take to heart the challenging words of 1 Corinthians. Words that were not written in the context of a wedding, although certainly can be used at a wedding. But a word that was written in the midst of a congregation that was exhibiting messiness, pride, arrogance, sexual immorality, impatience, abuse of spiritual gifts, abuse of the Lord's Supper. You use Paul to write those words because you love us and you desire for us to love one another as you have loved us. I thank you and I give you praise, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Urban Hope Podcast. For more information about Urban Hope Community Church, please visit our website, www.urbanhopecc.com.